Good afternoon, everyone. If you were to categorize the commandments of God, which would be the most important? In fact, Jesus Christ, during his ministry on earth, was asked this very question, likely on more than one occasion. We read in Matthew 22 and verse 35, Matthew 22 and verse 35, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The second of the great commandments of the law, according to Jesus Christ, is taken from the Old Testament, where we read in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, Leviticus 19 verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And this is one of the commandments which, as Jesus said, lays at the very foundation of the way of life that is summed up in the Law and the Prophets. In today's sermon, I want to discuss this commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We might begin by, get, by asking the question, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? The people of Israel found themselves in Egypt as slaves. Originally, they had been invited to settle in a particular area of Egypt, but eventually the government of Egypt became hostile to the Israelites and enslaved them. Pharaoh set out on a policy of murdering their male children as they were born. And finally, he sought to destroy the Israelites as a people. And yet, the Egyptians were Israel's neighbors as far as God was concerned. The Egyptians were Israel's neighbors. We read in Exodus, 20, uh, Exodus 3 and verse 21, Exodus 3 verse 21, God said, I will give this people, that is the Israelites, favor inside of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, her neighbor being Egyptians, so she wasn't talking about Israelite neighbors. He was talking here about neighbors who were Egyptians. Every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So the Egyptians were neighbors of the Israelites, and for that matter, vice versa. Essentially, the word for neighbor, word translated neighbor, in both Hebrew and Greek, in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament, those words imply someone who is near, someone who's near. It would imply, in effect, anyone with whom you have some interaction. Otherwise, if they weren't in some manner of speaking near, and it could be in our age, uh, someone could be near halfway across the world, 
that you might be communicating with on the telephone or internet or whatever, but your neighbor could be anybody that with which you have some interaction. The Samaritans at the time of Christ dwelt in Samaria. Samaria was an area that separated Judea to the south and Galilee to the north. In Judea and Galilee, the population was mostly Jewish. Samaria in between the two was part of the territory that had belonged to the northern kingdom of Israel prior to their deportation in the eighth century BC. Samaritans were people who had been brought into the land from other areas to replace the Israelites who had been killed or deported to other places. So the Samaritans were mostly Gentile as far as their origin was concerned. And although there had been intermarriage among the Gentiles who had come into the Samaria among the Jews and other Israelites. Although they had over time adopted certain aspects of the Jewish religion, the Samaritans were regarded as a mixed race of apostates by many of the Jews at the time of Christ. And in fact, to a large degree, that's exactly what they were. And as a consequence, there was a great deal of enmity or mutual hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans at the time of Christ. The Jews of Palestine commonly regarded Samaritans as enemies and vice versa. But were the Samaritans to be regarded as neighbors? Should they have been regarded as neighbors nevertheless in terms of how the second of the two great commandments is concerned? In Luke chapter 10, we read an account that's actually a parable that has to do with the Jews and the Samaritans. In verse 25 of Luke 10, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, speaking of Jesus Christ, tested Jesus Christ, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. So this lawyer, this scribe, doctor of the laws that was sometimes referred to, supposedly an expert in the law, actually answered this question correctly. And Jesus said to him, you've answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So he was trying to set up a scenario where, depending on the person, you had no obligation to love him. Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. Now, the quickest way to get to Jericho from Jerusalem was to go through Samaria. So this uh, certain man would, would have been a Jew in all likelihood coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. So here was a Jewish man who had been injured and robbed, was lying in the road or adjacent to the road, and a priest came by and ignored him, and a Levite came by and ignored him, and these were supposed to be the religious leaders among the Jews, at least among the religious leaders. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn to, and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So this parable illustrates that your neighbor could be anyone whom you have some opportunity to serve or who might in fact have an opportunity to serve you. Our neighbors might include our putative enemies even as we see in this parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 43, Matthew 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So again, our neighbor, the neighbor that we are to love could be anybody that we come into any sort of contact with, even our enemies. The next question we might ask is, we're told to love our neighbor, but how do you love your neighbor? How are you to love your neighbor? What does that mean? By implication, when we're told you shall love your neighbor as yourself, we are to, in a sense, put ourselves in our neighbor's shoes and treat him or her as we would want to be treated under similar circumstances. In Matthew 7 and verse 12, Matthew 7 and verse 12, Jesus said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is really just another way of, of saying the same thing as one might say in love your neighbor as you love yourself. It implies that, that you treat men the way you would want to be treated yourself. So how do we apply this principle? This is a great principle, but it must be applied within the confines of God's law. And 
it's very important that that be done to apply this principle properly. A thief, for example, might wish to be allowed to pursue his habit of stealing unmolested. But if those responsible for enforcing the law were to allow that to be done, they would be guilty of injustice. There are many laws and principles in the Bible that tell us explicitly and implicitly how to love our neighbors. And there are nuances and what may seem to a carnal mind to be contradictions in the Bible's instructions regarding loving our neighbors. This concept of loving our neighbor needs to be applied within the context of scripturally sound principles if it is to be done according to God's will and with the best possible outcome. In discussing the question of how we are, are we to love our neighbor, we might first ask the question, how are we not to love our neighbor? In Romans 15, verse 1, Romans 15, verse 1, Paul wrote, then we who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is from the New King James translation and this word translated scruples is not a good translation. The Greek word translated scruples here is asthenema, which means weakness or infirmity. And what Paul is really saying is here that the strong ought to help the weak to bear with the, the weaknesses, the infirmities of the weak. The strong ought to do whatever they can to help the weak. And this would be primarily speaking of uh, spiritual matters, but it could apply in physical ways as well. It could apply either way or both ways. But he goes on to say, let us each please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. Let us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. Now what this tells us that is that if doing something to please a neighbor would not be to his ultimate good, nor to his edification in the long run, then we ought not to do it. There are lots of things we might do that would please someone that would not be for their good. Parents, for example, might please their children by letting them throw tantrums and fits and misbehave. But that's not good for the children in the long run. An alcoholic might be pleased to have someone hand him over one drink after another, one alcoholic drink after another, and that might please him in the short term, but that would not be for his good, nor for his edification. So if you do something that might, quote, please someone, but it is not for their good, if it is, it is not edifying for that to be done, if you did it anyway, it would violate the principle of loving one's neighbor as God would have you do. To allow a thief to steal with impunity, as I said, would not be good 
ultimately, nor for his edification. It would be better for him to be punished appropriately to encourage him to amend his conduct for his own good and for the good of others. And so we see that there are particular paths that we ought to take in applying this law, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Often in the Bible we see punishment prescribed for those who do evil. Punishment is a judgment on lawless conduct, but also a lesson for those who have done evil and for others who might follow their example to the end that all may become obedient to God and be blessed in doing so. Love, as far as Scripture is concerned, is defined by God's commandments. As we read in 1 John 5, verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. When we act outside the boundaries of God's commandments or encourage others to do so, we are not exercising godly love. In Leviticus 19, and verse 15, this is, this is the same chapter from which we read this principle, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 15 of Leviticus 19, it says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor, from which those who are appointed to judge others must judge justly in accordance with the laws of God for the good of everyone concerned. And there are times when we must rebuke those who are sinning and doing wrong. And that is a part of how we are to love our neighbor. But such rebuke must be done judiciously and in the proper time and place. We read in verse 17 of, uh, of Leviticus 19, Leviticus 19 verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your brother and not bear sin because of him. So there are times when we must rebuke a brother, but we must not do it in hatred or bitterness or hold grudges against others. And although there are times when we must rebuke sin, it's not good to set oneself up as a judge and a critic, minding other people's affairs in a meddlesome or self-righteous manner. Jesus said, judge not, that you be not judged, Matthew 7 and verse 1. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we need to be very careful about how we approach this matter of judgment, rebuking people, and so forth, even though there are times when we need to do that. One of the most important ways that we can love our neighbors is to set a right example for them. If you really love other people, you will want to set the right example for them. You want, you want to live your life 
in such a way that they might be profited by following your example. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 16, Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And in 1 Peter 3 and verse 1, 1 Peter 3 and verse 1, uh, Peter wrote, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. This principle expressed here of winning people over by your conduct, not necessarily by what you say, but what you do, the way you live your life, depending on the circumstances, could be applied by anyone, by men or women. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2 and verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we are to conduct ourselves in such a manner that our example is a positive one. That's one of the ways in which we love our neighbors. Showing mercy in time of need is another way to love one's neighbors, as we saw in the parable of the Good Samaritan and in the instructions to love our enemies by showing mercy. We read in James 1 and verse 27, James 1 and verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. And that would imply not just visiting them, but also helping them in whatever way that you might be able to do that. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. We read in Romans 12, verse 19, Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. In other words, do not vent your wrath on others who might have done you wrong. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we are not to seek to avenge ourselves. We are to, if we have the wherewithal and the opportunity to help even our enemies in ways in which they might need help, we are to do that. We're to overcome evil with good. Now, some may think here's a contradiction, talking about not seeking vengeance, but feeding and giving someone a drink might lead to them having coals of fire heaped on their heads. But this is not a contradiction. One does not feed or give drink to an enemy as a backdoor way of destroying him. That's not what the meaning here is. Barnes notes comments as follows on this phrase, in doing so you will heap coals of fire on his head in verse 20. 
And he says here in Barnes notes, the idea is not that in doing so we shall call down divine vengeance on the man, but the apostle is speaking of the natural effect or result of showing him kindness. Burning coals heaped on a man's head would be expressive of intense agony. So the apostle says that the effect of doing good to an enemy would be to produce pain, but the pain will result from shame, remorse of conscience, a conviction of the evil of his conduct, and an apprehension, apprehension of divine displeasure that may lead to repentance. To do this is not only perfectly right, but it is desirable. If a man can be brought to reflection and true repentance, it should be done, end quote. So I might add that doing this, giving your enemy food or drink or showing mercy toward him uh, could have a positive effect on his attitude. In some cases, it might not have a positive effect, but in other cases, it very well could. And ultimately, if the enemies of God don't repent, then they will be dealt with and, and may be cast into the lake of fire. But we have the responsibility to love even our enemies. An example of how this might work in practice is during World War II, the United States and Japan were bitter enemies. Finally, Japan was bombed into ruin and their military machine rendered impotent. And the Japanese people had been told by their government that the Americans would do all manner of evil to them if they were victorious. Yet the Japanese, when the Americans occupied Japan after the war, were treated with great kindness by the American government. And the American government helped to restore the Japanese economy and enable them to become self-sufficient within a few years after the war ended. And since that time, the Japanese and American nations have been friendly to one another and close allies, perhaps among the closest of the allies of the United States has been Japan during the last years, uh, several decades after the war. Feeding and clothing an enemy in time of need can indeed lead to a melting of hardened hearts and a forging of fast friendships. The law tells us that loving one's neighbor takes precedence over offerings and sacrifices. If we are sinning against a neighbor when we make sacrifices and we are behaving in that manner, we're making a mockery of the sacrifices we make to God. In Leviticus 6 and verse 1, Leviticus 6 and verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, if a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping or about a pledge or about a robbery or if he has extorted from his neighbor or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely, in any one of these things that, man, that a man may do in which he sins, then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty that he shall restore what he has stolen or the thing which he has extorted or what was delivered to him for safekeeping 
or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it, and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of the, these things that he may have done in which he trespasses. So we see here that before bringing the trespass offering, the offender was required to restore what he had unlawfully taken from his neighbor. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Matthew 5 and verse 23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. This is a summary of what the law says with regard to the trespass offering and the relationship between our neighbors and our sacrifices toward, to God or our worship toward God. The lesson for us is that we ought to be reconciled to our brothers or our neighbors if we have done them wrong, if we expect to have a proper relationship with God. We read in Mark 12, Mark 12 beginning at verse 28, one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is here, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, is, uh, like it is this, you shall love your neighbors yourself, there is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well, said teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Another important way in which we love our neighbors is to seek to live at peace with them, to do them no harm. In Romans 13, verse 8, Romans 13, verse 8, we're told, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, they are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment, or the fulfilling, as it could be translated, of the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor. We ought to do everything possible to avoid useless wrangling and unnecessary contentions among ourselves. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are times when we must expose evil and falsehoods, but at the same time, we need to endeavor to avoid engaging in petty insults, baseless accusations, and malicious slander against other people. 
In Galatians 5, verse 14, it says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. We can see how that works in what's going on in our nation in particular these days with the rancor, the hatred, the divisions, the bitterness that exists between various factions in our nation. And similar things have happened in the past. For example, in the, especially in the era before the Civil War, there was similar acrimony and division within the nation. But I, I doubt that this nation, the United States, has been more divided at any time since the Civil War than it is today in certain respects at least. But the same thing could happen in a church or among any other group of people, even in a family. So we must learn to live at peace with one another and strive to live at peace. There are many specific instructions in the law which tell us how to treat our neighbors. And they, uh, these are specific ways in which the law is to be applied to fulfill the principle of loving one's neighbor. The Bible is full of, of these uh, commandments and these examples and principles. The Ten Commandments forbid specific acts that harm one's neighbor. In Exodus 22, as another example, are the laws of restitution, detailing one's responsibility for making good what he has become liable for. In this same context, in Exodus 22, abominable sex perversions and idolatry are condemned because those things are harmful to the people involved and they corrupt the entire society. Foreigners in the land are not to be oppressed, we're told, nor are widows and orphans. In Exodus 22 and verse 21, we read, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. Now, aliens and widows and orphans are among the most vulnerable people in any society and we are not to try to take advantage of them, cheat them, prey on them, or, or afflict them in any way whatsoever. That would not be loving your neighbor. Lending money for interest is not of itself a sin. For example, in the parable of the talents, Jesus said concerning the unprofitable servant, so you, may, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. But although lending money at interest is not necessarily a sin, it could be a sin under certain circumstances. We ought not to take advantage of a brother who is without means in order to profit off of his misery. In Exodus 22 and verse 25, Exodus 22 and verse 25, it says, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you. You shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. 
If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. So you, if you loan money to someone who is in very dire straits, who has genuine need, and you have the means to help the person, and you loan him money, you should not expect to be paid back more than the sum that you loaned him. And that's not the same necessarily as a bank loaning money for someone to go into business or buy a house or buy a car or something like that. As mentioned earlier, we need to strive to be at peace with our neighbors as much as possible, as much as it's up to us. We read in Romans 12 and verse 17, Romans 12 verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Peter wrote 1 Peter 3 and verse 8, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. It's not possible always to live at peace with everyone in an evil world but we should do everything within our power to do so, at the same time being faithful to God. What that means is that sometimes in the interest of peace and loving our neighbors, we must allow ourselves to be wronged. Sometimes, not all the time necessarily, but sometimes in the interest of peace and loving our neighbors, we must allow ourselves to be wronged. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 38, Matthew 5, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other to him also. Now this is what Adam Clark has to say on, on verse 39 in his commentary, Clark's commentary, it says, that is, Rather than avenge thyself, be ready to suffer patiently a repetition of the same injury. But these exhortations belong to those principally who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Let such leave the judgment of their cause to him for whose sake they suffer. The Jews always thought that every outrage should be resented, and thus the spirit of hatred and strife was fostered. End of quote. Now, I think he's speaking here some of the Jewish writings. I'm sure not every Jew thought this way necessarily, but 
many people do think that way. In fact, I think most people probably think that way who are carnal in their thinking, that every outrage should be avenged. But Jesus said, when we are persecuted, especially if we are persecuted for righteousness sake, that we are not to seek to resist necessarily or to avenge ourselves. The same principle applies in verse 40 of Matthew 5, where Jesus said, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. This is what uh, the uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary has to say on this verse. If any man will sue you at the law and take away your coat, the inner garment, in pledge for a debt, as we read in Exodus 22, let him have your cloak also, the outer and more costly garment. This overcoat was not allowed to be retained overnight as a pledge from the poor because they used it for a bed covering. And yet Jesus said, if someone demands your tunic, let him have your, or your undergarment, let him have your cloak also. It'd be like someone wants to, your shirt, uh, for example, I'm wearing a coat and a shirt here. If someone wanted my shirt under this principle, I would offer him my coat as well. And this was uh, under the Roman government, this was sometimes done by those in authority who would demand certain favors. And, of course, among the Jews, if they took something as a pledge for a debt, a garment as pledge for a debt, even if it was something that was required unjustly, especially by those in authority, then we ought to yield rather than resist and leave the final outcome to God because God hears the cries of those who are being treated unjustly. As he said in Exodus 22 and verse 26, if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear for I am gracious. Jesus went on to say in verse 42 of Matthew 5, Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. If a neighbor is truly in need, through no fault of his own, we are required to help him if we have the means to do so. Now, this does require judgment. That This does not mean that anyone who is poor automatically has a claim on everything you own or on your property. When you help someone, you make a judgment as to the uh, genuineness of the need and also assess whether you have the means to help the person or not and what would be the likely outcome. Paul wrote elsewhere that if a man will not work, neither should he eat. So if someone is just lazy and refuses to work and wants to, to go around panhandling, you're not obligated to help such a person in those circumstances. But if, if a man is poor through no fault of his own and is in desperate need of help and you have the means, then you ought to help him. In Deuteronomy 15 and verse 7, Deuteronomy 15 verse 7, if there is a poor 
among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in, in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut up uh, shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. And notice in this case, this would be a loan. And your eyes shall be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and you, it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land, therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and to your needy in your land. In other words, he's telling us that we must be generous, to those who have genuine needs, and if a loan is in order, we ought not to refuse to give the loan because of the proximity of the year of release. Under God's law, every seventh year was a year of release where certain debts were forgiven, and this would be one of those kinds of debts. So these are some of the ways in which we are instructed in the Bible to love our neighbors. And what we've covered is far from an, from an exhausting commentary on the Bible's instructions and examples of loving our neighbors. There's much more that could be said. But I hope that we will be mindful always of the great commandment that sums up the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself.